0: Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning, and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, and this is episode 111. This is like a greatest hits version of my last two Instagram lives. Uh, One was on nutrition, one was on training, and I just mashed them together. So I picked up the best questions, the best answers, put them all together, and then remix it into this podcast. So hopefully you guys enjoy. Next week, episode 112, we're talking all about type 2 diabetes. Now, Dr. Baraki and I are doing our standard sort of research where we go through, catalog everything we feel like is important, but we want to hear from you. What do you think is important? Uh, What we'll do is we'll put like this sort of lightning round together at the end of the podcast and uh, make sure to include any information that we might have otherwise overlooked. So send your questions about type 2 diabetes, uh, particularly with respect to nutrition and training, to media at barbellmedicine.com and we'll get your questions on the show. Uh, Without any further ado, let's get to this week's podcast. Oh, and also another plug Hey, if you want to join in on the uh, live Q and A's, I do them every Wednesday, 5.30 PM Pacific standard time over on my Instagram page. It's Jordan underscore barbell medicine. Uh, this Wednesday, which is going to be, uh, I think the second or third of September, um, whatever Wednesday ends up being is, uh, going to be about injuries. So if you have an injury related question, um, come over to my Instagram page about 5.30 PM Pacific standard time and, uh, let's do it. You can ask me a question live. So in any case, let's get into this week's podcast. Let's see, when SBDR work sets have the same RPE, I need to reduce load after the first work set by five to ten pounds on each of the following set to achieve the ORX oh, RPE, the prescribed RPE. That's a, okay. Rest is three to four minutes between sets, normal or what do? If you're saying that some of the work sets RPEs, the rate of perceived exertion is you know nine, then it kind of makes sense that you'll probably have to drop the load. Uh, reduce the load from from successive sets it, i don't know a lot of folks who can repeat sets at rpe9 it's just a little on the heavier end higher intensity end where people aren't generally able to p- reproduce the performance over and over and over again um, even with long rest periods they the RPE tends to climb um, in any case if it's RPE 8 or rp7 you probably should be able to repeat the load um, but you know If you're not there yet, that's fine. Just reduce the weight, and would recommend uh, hitting the uh, prescribed RPE, regardless. Does protein powder actually work? Um, So, this is an interesting question, and and I think to answer it fully, um, and really kind of expand this idea, we need to define what we mean by work. Um, so as far as generating a muscle protein synthesis response, yes. Most protein supplements, in particular whey protein, um, tends to be very, very adept at driving a muscle protein synthesis response, thereby giving you the best chance at increasing uh, lean body mass in the way of skeletal muscle tissue. Is it better than food, uh, like whole food, that otherwise contains all of the essential amino acids that are present in high concentrations in a, a protein powder? No, um, the the benefit to a protein powder over a whole food is that in general there's less calories for the amount of essential amino acids that you're taking in. Um, so, for example, our whey protein um, has about 90 calories per serving to get uh, 20 grams of protein and a very highly concentrated um, uh, amount of essential amino acids. Same thing with our vegan protein. So both both of those would be a very calorie-efficient way to get your essential amino acids um, which you, you know do need to drive muscle protein synthesis which you want to do to not only uh, preserve but also increase the amount of lean body mass you have. Uh, so in that case, yes, protein powder works. But does it work better than norm, you know regular food? No, it's just more calorie efficient. Can be more portable. Can be more convenient. Can improve adherence. There's some decent data on it, um, actually improving weight loss outcomes uh, in individuals. Whether that be uh, because it's changing you know total dietary pattern behaviors, meaning that people replace whole meals with uh, a protein shake, which again is relatively low calorie, uh, or increasing dietary protein. You know tends to. Limit the intake of other calories, so you know calorie uh, uh, deficit is preserved. You know that that probably there's probably both both of those things happening and some other things going on too. Um, But in any case, to answer your question, yes, protein powder works. You would look to get either a, a whey protein supplement if you know that's your jam. Um, you, you would like it to have you know, about 20 grams of protein per serving, be 120 calories or less. Again, ours is 90. You would like it to list all of the, the amino acid uh, uh, concentrations so that way you know what you're getting. You would like it to be um, CGMP certified, so cert- uh, certified uh, that it's complying with the good manufacturing processes, um, and then also have some sort of third-party testing, whether that's informed for sport. That's what we have, which means that every batch has been tested. Uh, so that it doesn't have any contaminants in it that would uh, that either aren't listed on the label um, or uh, that would make you test positive for a WADA uh, drug test. Um, other sort of third-party tests, uh, testing labs that do that a similar sort of thing. USP does this, and uh, NSF also does that. There's a there's a handful of them. Um, so you'd want both of those things. And then finally, you'd also want to make sure that there's no evidence of what's termed protein spiking in the protein supplement that you're, that you're uh, buying. So evidence of protein spiking if there is additional glutamine, which doesn't do anything, um, but does increase the protein count uh, that you see on the label. Um, that would be evidence of protein spiking, in, uh, in- including dietary creatine in a protein supplement. That would uh, you know not be something that you want to do. Uh, Because again, it just increases the protein count, but that's not really not why you're taking the dietary protein. Uh, Same thing with like glycine and stuff like that. Uh, So that's, and you know, you can find a really good whey protein, um, you know, that meets all that criteria. Uh, Again, we do sell this. There are other uh, good options out there. Um, It's probably not going to be the cheapest option out there that fulfills all that criteria. But, uh, you know, saving a few bucks on protein is probably not worth it in the long run when you consider the uh, rate of contamination and um, the relative risks that go with that. If you are a vegan or vegetarian uh, or otherwise don't tolerate whey, uh, a pea protein isolate or a soy protein isolate or even rice protein can work. Um, again, what you would really want to do is check out the essential amino acid content that, uh, again, should be listed on the protein supplement. Um, if you want a reference for like what it should look like, you can go to our website and look at our protein supplements and look at the amino acid concentrations there. Um, if you're not getting those essential amino acids in your protein supplement, it's not a worthwhile protein supplement in general. Um, you know, there's obviously some wiggle room on the total amounts, but if you're deficient in the BCAAs or the, any of the other additional uh, essential amino acids, um, it's probably not worth buying the supplement. Um, collagen protein, not worth buying. Bioavailability is effectively zero. Doesn't do anything. Waste of money. And, and it's weird because it's so cheap like to actually buy like wholesale you know or or like if we were to go to buy it it's so cheap it's much cheaper than whey much cheaper than pea protein um anything else like that but uh (laughs) people sell it for more i don't understand all right moving on does collagen do anything for the joints dietary supplemental collagen does not do anything for the joints no And just think about it. It's like you're eating protein. So to the extent that any collagen protein that you're ingesting is actually biologically available, which it's very low. So to to be to be clear, the biological availability, bioavailability of collagen protein is very low. It's just protein though. Okay. So you're consuming protein, and then it breaks down into its constituent amino acids. It's absorbed through the Uh, small intestine, enters the portal vein, goes to the liver. The liver goes, get out of here. Amino acids, we're all full. And then those amino acids disperse through the bloodstream to go to a whole host of different places. But it's not like they get to choose like, oh, this is a joint? I like joints. And then they sit there with the joint and, you know, maybe smoke a joint. No, they don't do that. They're they're indiscriminately going different places. Um, And it's just like eating any other protein. So collagen protein, waste of money. Can you do a 30 day carnivore experiment? No, because uh, yeah, I've I've lost all of my face paint. I can't turn myself into a clown and uh, I certainly wouldn't do it for 30 days. What watch is that bro? Uh, This is a citizen. What lifts can increase speed and explosiveness? So you'd wanna really define both terms and so, um, I think what you're talking about is high velocity force production and so high velocity force production is best trained by doing high velocity force production movements or movements done at high velocities so y- there's really no specific movement that's like yeah this is the best one for high velocity force production rather you can do any movement really provided the load is light enough that you can move it at a high velocity uh, so you could do squats at a light enough weight to Train high velocity force production. Same thing with deadlifts; they, you know, kind of turn into clean pulls at that point. Um, you could do bench press uh, at a light enough weight, where again you're getting um, high velocity force production, or the med-, uh, med ball put. It's like a seated shot put thing, you know. Uh, so you can do that for upper body. Uh, also, plyometrics can, can be included here. It really just depends what the sport-specific application is here because then you'd want to kind of tailor what exercise selection um, you end up selecting. Um, the Olympic lifts can be great if someone who wants to learn them has an interest in learning them and, and you know, has some proficiency, but ultimately, you know, the, the skill required to do a power clean certainly is higher than a, you know, squat at a lighter weight where you're still contracting uh, or or training high velocity force production. So, you know, if somebody doesn't really want to learn the Olympic lifts, they don't necessarily have to. There's not like a unique benefit there um, outside of getting better at the Olympic lifts, which, you know, may be useful. Sure. The triple extension stuff uh, can be useful, but if you're doing some jumping or the sport requires jumping and you're training that otherwise, then I don't know, again, that there's something specifically or uniquely useful, uniquely beneficial about the uh, Olympic lifts. Is explosive power purely genetic? My coach said it's a waste of time to try to improve my standing vertical jump. Um, there is a strong genetic component to uh, rate of force production and high velocity force production. There's also a strong training component um, particularly w- when specific to the test. I mean, the point of testing somebody standing vertical jump is to identify uh, individuals with high amounts of high velocity force production, not necessarily see who trained for the test uh, the most. Uh, that being said, individuals, even if they didn't strike the genetic lottery for you know uh, the, um, their baseline levels of high velocity force production can improve their high velocity force production by, by training high velocity force production. I'd wonder who your coach is and what company they work for if they say that it's a waste of time to try to uh, improve performance that's important to you. But, you know, that's just not something we we, we we do here at Barbo Medicine, so I can do it. One question we get frequently is like, how do I get somebody to blank? And then usually that blank is like some sort of change, right? How do I change their behavior? get them to change their behavior, get motivated to change their behavior, or this, that, and the other? And it's like, you can't convince people to do anything by throwing facts at them or trying to scare them. Just in general, that very rarely works. I think it works just enough so that we keep doing that. When I say we, I don't mean us, because we kind of understand that behavior change is more complex than that, but like people keep doing that. Um, Motivational interviewing and behavioral change and and kind of wrapping those two things together really will put you ahead in not only the healthcare space, but also the, the fitness industry. If you're really trying to do right by your clients, like having solid motivational interviewing skills, that's better, in my opinion, than having the fund of knowledge to, like, you know, program somebody for elite level performance. Because I don't care about that. I mean, I mean, I care about it for myself personally and then the clients that I'm, you know, working with. But I would re- give up those skills readily to impart more motivational interviewing skills uh, to other folks because I think that uh, ends up moving the needle uh, further, um, in the community. And I think that's, that's what we're doing here. Right. So what would you say to a female client that says they want to get fit and strong, but don't want to get bulky? How would you manage that situation to convince them to resistance train? I I don't know that I would address that question and start from a place where I'm going to try to convince you of something. I think the first place I would start from uh, is a place of trying to ask more questions to understand where you know, why they think this is going to happen and what they're afraid of. Um, So, for example, if they have this history of that every time that they've previously lifted weights, they've put on a lot of muscle, the incorrect response to that sort of report is is that, oh, no, women can't do that because, you know, you're a woman. It's like, are you kidding me? So, one, the relative increase in strength and the relative increase in hypertrophy is the same between men and women. Yeah, the same. There's no difference. The relative increase in strength and the relative increase in hypertrophy between men and women do a given resistance training program is the same. So maybe she is a hyper responder to resistance training and she just gets yoked. Now, you know, some people who are hyper responders to resistance training go on to win the CrossFit games, but not everybody wants to do that. So that could be a you know part of her history, and she's like, I don't want that. You're the subject matter expert. How would you help me? So instead of blowing her off, you would say, Hey you know, there's this dose-dependent relationship between training volume and muscular hypertrophy. So if we don't want to do that, we can still get stronger, okay? But we're going to have a reduced volume program so you don't gain this extra lean body mass, which you've, you know, had this history of. But that all comes from this place where you're kind of exploring, like, why is this a concern? And then trying to connect with them on a level where you're showing understanding and then providing the right resources and the right sort of, Strategy that not only supports them in reaching their goals, uh, but also that they helped kind of like come to that conclusion. Um, Yeah, so I don't know. I wouldn't try to convince somebody right off the bat, but uh, I would rather try to explore that, that question a little further. My elderly parents are very resistant to resistance training. Unfortunately, it's not unique. It doesn't help that their doctor tells them that resistance training would wear and tear the joints and they should just walk. What do? I mean, I don't, to be f- frank, even though my name is Jordan, I don't know that there's much you can do. They didn't ask you. Um, and probably there's a substantial amount of co- uh, confirmation bias into what their doctor is saying. They've been noceboed, which is all unfortunate. And um, yeah, that, that is problematic. I think that if you wanted to make a positive change in their life um, you would ask them if they have any interest at all in doing resistance training of any type and if they say yes ask them what they'd like to do in which case you would help them do that if they're not interested right and they're very opposed to the idea i don't know that you can do anything about that yeah, it's unfortunate, but that's the thing. You can't just overwhelm people with facts and data and just hit them, you know, hit them with the truth. And then they're going to, substan- you know, just change their behavior based on that. Um, and that being said, you might, they might find that bodyweight style exercise is a good entry point for them. So just, you know, stand, uh, uh, sit up, getting up out of a chair. In fact it's one of the screening tests we use for sarcopenia so it's st- uh, getting up out of a chair without using your arms five times as fast as possible if it takes them you know longer than 20 seconds uh i actually think the cutoff is 17 seconds but if it takes them longer than 20 seconds to do that um cut might be 15 seconds i forget offhand but in any case if it takes them longer than 20 seconds to do that now for the third time uh you know that would be that would raise raise my eyebrow and say hey i, I think we need to work on this and you know they're probably they probably know that having a little bit more muscle mass and more strength is good for them. Um, you could also ask them questions like, "Hey, is there anything that you haven't been able to do in maybe you know the last five years or so uh, that you used to be able to do that you think is due to like not being quite as strong?" And then you know if there is something, say, think um, you know maybe exercising a little bit and to gain some strength would, would help. Um, if they ask specific questions about specific, you know, uh, medical conditions they have, like if they do in fact have osteoarthritis or they are in fact worried about wear and tear, uh, you know, we have substantial data on our website and resources on our, our website for, for a lot of different medical conditions, including osteoarthritis, including joint pain. But you know, the, the, the fact of the matter is that folks with osteoarthritis and joint pain, the, those folks, the people who exercise the most do the best. They have the least amount of pain, the highest amount of function and sat, you know, and quality of life. So, yeah, in addition to uh, resistance training, <clears throat> by hook or by crook, if whatever you can do, I'd also try to get them to eat more protein. And again, all this stuff has to be couched through the lens of like behavioral change. You can't just like throw facts at people and hope they change their behavior. Otherwise, we, you know, there wouldn't be any drug problems. Wouldn't people, we wouldn't have people who smoke, right? You know, people would lose weight like that. You just throw facts at them and they change, right? That's how it works. Oh wait, that's not how it works. So, uh, yeah, it's complicated. Moving on, what are your thoughts on the effectiveness of a whole food vegan diet and powerlifting? Yeah, so just uh, broadly speaking, I think that um, someone consuming a vegan or vegetarian diet can excel in any sport that they would otherwise have excelled in if they weren't a vegan. So effectively, you'd have the equivalent chances of excelling in a sport whether or not whether you're a vegan, omnivore, or vegetarian. Lacto, ovo, vegetarian, whatever. The diet is probably non contributory outside of uh, calorie sort of uh, balance and uh, protein intake um, to the extent that uh, some sports uh, basically select for individuals who are carrying more lean body mass or heavier body weights. And so, you know, op- optimizing or um, sort of uh, fi- fitting that mold of an athlete in a, in a sport is going to, you know, maybe require some people alter their body weight and alter the lean body mass uh, composition. But yeah, you can gain just as much muscle on a vegan diet as you can on a, um, m- you know, meat-consuming diet. So don't care. <laughs> Is going vegan diminish strength and hypertrophy gains in the long term? No. Nope. You, you gain just as much muscle mass and just as much strength eating and consuming a vegan diet as a non-vegan diet provided protein and calories are matched. The biggest... Shift that happens when people consume a vegan diet is that they end up eating about 600 calories or so less per day. With the vegetarian diet, it's about 400 calories or so less per day. But the protein intake remains relatively similar. Average protein intake in America right now is just around 100 grams for adults, which is probably not enough. Um, You know, the RDA is 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day, although um, the best data we have with uh, respect to sport and with respect to uh, in increasing lean body mass and particularly preserving it long-term in uh, you know, high-risk populations, so older individuals, for example, suggest that that RDA you know, maybe needs to be moved up to like 1.2 grams per kilo per day, uh, even closer to maybe 1.6 grams per kilo per day. And then if you're doing engaging in heavy resistance training very frequently throughout the week, maybe even doing two-a-days uh, and or you're very, very lean, uh, and or you're very, very anabolically resistant, which would be like an older individual, just compared to a younger person. Or um, you're taking medications that make you more anabolically resistant, aka steroids, not the cool kind, but the you know glucocorticoid, glucocorticoid kind. Or you have medical conditions that make you more anabolically resistant. So an individual with obesity, individuals with autoimmune diseases, um, anything like that suggest that maybe their protein uh, intake should be even higher, maybe closer to 2.2, 2.5, even all the way up to three grams per kilo body weight per day. So if you had a vegan uh, versus a non-vegan and they were both consuming 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day, you would expect no difference in outcomes with respect to hypertrophy or strength. And so I don't know that I could recommend that somebody not eat a vegan diet uh any more than i could recommend somebody eating an omnivorous diet it's really personal preference there um hopefully that makes sense let's see if we are enjoying endurance training but want to continue strength training how would you recommend adjusting volume due to less recovery resources for example making adjustments to powerlifting too yeah so i don't necessarily know that i would you know prophylactically recommend volume reductions or other you know training stimulus reductions on the strength training side um, just because you're going to continue doing um, aerobic or, or combined aerobic and anaerobic sort of conditioning work, um, I think that if you have some training history in that, meaning you've done it for months or years or you know, otherwise have become like fairly proficient, and in that sort of training that we can just use an umbrella term and call it endurance training. I don't know that you need to like necessarily do less strength training um, provided again that you've had some previous experience there. Uh, I think the interference effect that is the um, sort of reduction in uh, performance uh, uh, for or strength performance and reduction in endurance performance. When you combine both together, I think that's basically overstated. I think you have, uh, what you see in the literature is sometimes people don't respond well to certain programs. And sometimes those programs are inappropriate for their previous levels of training. So I think that our general sort of training paradigm should be that whatever your, the elements of your program are, they should be, appropriate for your current level of fitness and for your goals if your goal is to improve conditioning and improve strength then you should have you know decent you know sized uh, proportions of your training dedicated towards each one of those things and i don't know that i would go around just you know saying this needs to go down this needs to go down too and then this needs to go up uh, without sort of knowing more about the individual um, if you're running the powerlifting 2 template. I think that's reasonable to do that and and do conditioning three days a week if you've been doing conditioning for a while. As far as what that conditioning should be, it depends on your actual conditioning goals. So um, that would require more nuanced discussion. Endurance versus strength long term, which provides a better quality of life? Are both achievable? Uh, If you're asking, can you develop cardiorespiratory fitness and strength at the same time, the answer is yes. If you're asking which one is more important we don't have that answer we know that individuals with the highest levels of cardiorespiratory fitness also have the lowest risk of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease and premature mortality from a handful of different diseases and this appears to be a dose dependent relationship so the more cardiorespiratory fitness you have the lower your risk gets that's good news We also know that individuals with high levels of strength have reduced mortality uh, from diseases like cancer, type 2 diabetes, etc. So which one is better? You should have both. And I think having one without the other leaves you hamstrung. You don't want to be hamstrung. You should do both, which is, again, why the current guidelines recommend both aerobic training and resistance training. And we recommend the same thing, too. Lift your weights. Do your conditioning, Uh, that would be our, our, you know, the simplest exercise guidelines we could come up with. Let's see, what about glycemic index after hard resistance training? Does that work? Okay, so let's back up here. Glycemic index is effectively a measure of how quickly that your blood sugar rises uh, with uh, a sort of uh, different dietary carbohydrates in comparison to the reference dietary carbohydrate uh, which has a value of 100. And that's white bread. Um, so effectively, that raises your blood sugar the most uh, or the quickest um, when you're eating 50 grams of carbohydrates from that. And then all other carbohydrates that are that you have a glycemic index sort of value are compared to that. Um, in general, the more fiber um, that a carbohydrate source has, the lower the glycemic index. Um, so in general, there's been this thought that post-workout you need high glycemic index carbohydrates to rapidly replenish the glycogen that you just depleted from your hard workout. Here's the deal. Most uh, exercise resistance training is not does not deplete glycogen significantly. Um, so that's thing one. Y- you could do it. It would have to be a very long, high-intensity, you know, soul-crushing type of session that you went to failure over and over and over again and you know someone had to drag you out of the gym it, it, you look you're not doing it okay you're just not anyway um and then you'd have to train again within less than 24 hours because you're just going to replenish all that glycogen in those muscles within 24 hours even if you don't eat dietary carbohydrates so what's the rush it's not like you're going to grow more muscle or you're going to have you know more strength um you know long term it's just in the short term in the 24 hours sure you might have a little bit of uh, improved performance if you were going to test your strength uh, or something or or compete again or work out again within 24 hours but for your average you know two hour you know fairly decent volume session like it just doesn't matter you good do i recommend a week off between training templates or just run it back to back yeah, so all of our templates start with like a low stress or introduction week uh, so I think that's how I would kind of tie the templates together um, that would be that would serve as your deload or as your pivot or as your low stress week uh, and then if you needed if you felt like either psychologically if like from a motivational standpoint or you were still like if you were really sore or beat up uh, you weren't feeling your best not ready to like jump into another template right away I would just do the low stress week twice that's what I would do. Yeah, that's an option, too. How useful do you think a safety squat bar is for a non-competitive lifter? Oh, I think it's super useful. Yeah, I think the variations that you can do with a safety squat bar um, for squat and, and lower extremity development, I think is uh worth the cost uh so yeah, obviously you can do safety squat bar squats you can flip it around and do front squats with the bar up front you can do split squats you can do good mornings you can do hat fields, you can do Hatfield split squats um, I- anytime you have a shoulder injury or if you had upper extremity surgery or you have somebody who doesn't have the mobility to to rack a barbell on their back safety squat bar is super useful How do you determine when to increase volume on a strength-focused program and when to hold steady? Uh, So this is actually a good question. So like, when should you change uh, variables in this specific case, volume? Um, In general, I think that if the program is working for the stated goal or goals, in this case, strength improvement, and I'm gonna guess you're talking about like 1RM, uh, you know, maximum strength, Um, So you would look for things like your singles if you're doing those to go up or your weekly heavy sets to be going up or your estimated 1RM or all of those things in general to be trending up on the most important lifts. The squat, the bench, the deadlift if you're a powerlifter or whatever lifts you deem important if uh, you're not a competitive powerlifter. If all those things are trending up, it would be really hard for me to recommend changing the program. I would kind of just keep doing it um, until you had evidence that it wasn't working anymore. How would you, well, would that evidence be? Well, your estimated 1RMs aren't going up anymore. They're stagnant or they're even, you know, going down a little bit. Um, Or your rep, you know, uh, working weights are going down and it's been going down for, you know, two or three weeks. Uh, Those would tell me that the training stimulus that you're applying right now is not, is insufficient to drive the desired fitness adaptations. Now, what to do to fix that? In general, f- training stimulus drives two processes. One is fitness or is fitness adaptations and one is fatigue. And they happen at the same time. When the uh, amount of fitness adaptations outweigh the amount of fatigue, you get a performance improvement. Um, so in general, if you've been running the same program for an extended period of time, effectively you're generating less fatigue from each workout because you're becoming better and better adapted to that program. Um, and so there's less and less sort of stimulus to drive some of these fitness adaptations Uh, after a while you've effectively got all the fitness adaptations that you you know can glean from the program and you're you're still having even less and less training fatigue so it's like at that point you probably need more training stimulus to drive further fitness adaptations of course with that will come more fatigue but you know you kind of restart this process over again Um, it is possible that it's not a dosing issue but rather a formulation issue meaning that you could actually keep volume the same and change the average intensity for example and or the exercise selection or both Um, you don't know which path to choose until you've picked one and then retrospectively you could say I probably made the wrong decision or the right decision, Um, but it's not always that clear. So in general, my first move uh, is to change the formulation to exercise selection and average intensity. If somebody was previously responding pretty well to a given volume, and then if that doesn't work uh, based, you know, on a training block, then probably the next time I'm more likely to increase the training volume. Uh, let's see, Mr. Meanses, I'm nearing the end of my fat loss phase, and I've had to lower the amount of carbohydrates significantly. Is there a best approach to get those numbers back up with minimal adipose tissue regain? Um, so the period after fat loss, and what do in that situation is going to vary by individual. And unfortunately, I don't have any way to predict how you're going to respond. In general, this like reverse dieting thing where you need to go very slow or whatever, that's overblown and uh, would not recommend. And, and I also think it like kind of preys on people who have maybe some either borderline disordered eating habits or like otherwise are are not yet fully aware of like what their eating habits actually are. Because effectively they're looking for a scapegoat. Like I'm eating, you know, the the thought is I'm not actually eating that much. Why am I gaining weight or why am I not losing weight? And it's like, no, actually, you know, here's where these extra calories are coming from and that's why you're either maintaining or gaining weight. Um, In any case, so I I don't necessarily know that you need to reverse diet in a slow methodical manner. Um, Rather, I think you could probably jump up, you, you know, bump your calorie intake by 400, 500 calories right off the bat and likely maintain. In fact, when you look at the NIH Body Weight Planner, which is a great resource to figure, for figuring out how many calories you should be consuming in order to lose weight or maintain weight or even gain weight in some instances, if you put it on expert mode, you can kind of play with the different variables there. Um, you know, Effectively, it shows what's the calorie intake to get, reach your goal weight and then what's your, your maintenance calorie intake gonna be. And it's kind of usually between 400 to 600 kilocalories higher. Um, kilocalories, just a fancy way of saying calories with a capital C. We don't need to talk about it. In any case, uh, what would I do in this situation? I would probably try to maintain the low weight that you end up getting to, like sort of your target for three or four weeks. The, the deal is there's some risk of sort of preferentially restoring fat mass after a cut. So effectively, if you disrupt fat homeostasis, so you lo- you've look, you lost body fat, and then you immediately tr- start regaining weight, the there's evidence showing that the what the first thing the body's going to sort of like direct calories to is adipose tissue to the extent that you can prevent that uh, by maintaining weight for a few weeks maybe um, by participating in resistance training probably hedges your bets and then uh, otherwise you're going to kind of have to like just shoot your shot and see where the the chips fall um yeah there's there's I don't know that there's any real use to like maintaining the weight for a long period of time, like four weeks, five weeks, six weeks, something like that. But, you know, two or three weeks and then add calories that start out with like a 400 kilocalorie jump and then see how you do. All right. How exactly does GPP, which stands for general physical preparedness, work, allow you to handle more training volume? Is it due to the increased recovery from training more? Uh, So a few things. One. Uh, the specific components of GPP that would likely aid in a person uh, who, uh, is m- whose ac- exercise mostly revolves around resistance training um, is that by building up your uh, cardiorespiratory fitness base, you're able to recover a little bit faster, and not only between workouts, but between sets. And then also in general, because you're becoming more and more fit, just tolerate more training period. So it's double. Does hiking count as steady state? Well, hiking is not a monolithic sort of activity, right? It's not homogeneous. There's many different types of hiking. Wouldn't you agree? So depends. In general, if you're working, uh, you know, in an aerobic sort of heart rate and respiratory rate range, then sure, that would be steady state. Uh, particularly if you can keep the same pace over a long period of time. So probably a, a substantial amount of hiking would count as that. But there are brief spurts of anaerobic activity or you know, maybe a, a substantial portion of the hiking that some people do uh, may be anaerobic, in which case that would not count. So it depends. Is walking five to seven days a week for around 30 minutes sufficient to begin adding in cardiovascular training for someone who, is, who hasn't done much of that lately? So let's see, it takes the average person about 10 minutes to walk 1,000 steps. So 30 minutes per day is about 3,000 steps extra. The current exercise recommendations for adults in the United States suggest that you should be getting 150 to 300 minutes of aerobic uh, training per week. Uh, If you're doing that moderate intensity, which is four to six METs, which is probably what you're doing while you're walking. So 150 to 300 minutes. If you're doing 30 minutes, five to seven days a week, that means you're 150 to 210 minutes. So you're right in that sort of minimum sort of range. I think that's a great place to start and I would increase from there. Kelly Bobelli Yohez. Metamucil, okay for fiber when you're not getting enough fruit and veg? Um, No. I'm just going to say it. No, like, can you use a fiber supplement? I mean, sure, but I would just, I would much, much rather have you consume more fruits and vegetables, whole grains and legumes. And I think that, um, you know, most individuals should really be striving to do that rather than use a fiber supplement. Yeah, I think if you're using a fiber supplement, um, it's because you, you either don't want to eat fruits and vegetables, can eat fruits and vegetables, uh, or you need additional supplemental fiber because you're trying to do something with your, dietary cholesterol or not dietary, dietary cholesterol, but your serum cholesterol levels, something like that. Does eating fiber, does eating too much fiber have any negative side effects? No. In fact, there's like this dose dependent relationship, nearly linear in some cases between dietary fiber intake and good outcomes. Good outcomes being like weight loss or uh, reducing rate of weight regain. Um, improvements in uh, reductions in risk in type 2 diabetes, reductions in risk of cardiovascular disease, uh, certain cancers. So nah, man, get your fiber on. How often should you alter the rep range? And is there an issue maxing out on the big four lifts every week? So it just depends. Uh, pro- programming decisions depend on the, per- the individual. So what they prefer, because exercise enjoyment is a huge part of adherence um so, and what their goals are so per you know the person the context what did they previously respond to um uh, and, and and also like in general like what do we th- what what do we think the best ways best ways are to like attack or train for these particular goals for example if somebody you know was mostly interested in one rm performance then I probably wouldn't do a lot of sets over 12 reps in their entire training program now sure some blocks may ha- might have a slightly greater hypertrophy uh focus and they might do you know more sets of 10 or 12 or something like that but like i'm not gonna train their squat bench and deadlift at, at that in those rep schemes for for their any substantial portion of their training if somebody wants you know is more physique oriented then you know that changes but that, by the same token i'm not gonna have them do singles ever probably or or certainly not very often. So how often would you alter the rep range? In general, I alter rep ranges within the training program. So I use a more of a concurrent periodization sort of scheme, Um, but I don't usually change them week to week. I change them block to block, uh, even though there's a substantial amount of variation in rep ranges within the actual training program. Uh, I have a few clients that I do alter rep ranges week to week um mostly that's for driving um improvements in their strength but i don't think that they can reasonably do increase their the weight that they're working with week to week and i know that there's a psychological element there like if they're not able to add bar a weight to the bar each week then some you know that that messes with them so if i make it every other week or every third week Ah, uh, where the rep schemes the same. Finally, again, uh, maybe we can build some momentum. I've had some decent success with that in some folks, but not certainly not universally. Let's see. How come some percent of the population does not respond to creatine? Yes. Yeah, so, it's dietary cre- like supplemental creatine is designed to increase the amount of creatine phosphate in the muscle. Creatine phosphate is basically an energy uh, energy source for the contracting muscle. Um, It is thought that the one-third of individuals who do not respond to supplemental creatine, because one-third are responders and another-third are pseudo-responders or intermediate-level responders, but the 33% of individuals who probably don't respond to creatine, that they already have very high levels of creatine phosphate in their muscles. Therefore, they don't get any additional benefit. I keep getting arm tendonitis when I squat. I do low-bar squat. Is it because of the narrow grip stance? Narrow grip stance narrow grip stance it sounds like it's like a rap song you'll take a narrow grip stance what i assume you mean narrow grip um it could be that the way you're holding the barbell uh, it puts you in a sensitized position um, but that your programming is probably a little too much for you to handle based on um, what you've previously been exposed to you could test that theory by changing new, changing grips, changing where the bar is potentially. So you could go wider grip. You could go high bar. If high bar doesn't work, you could try front squats. And if that still doesn't feel great, you could do safety squat, bar squats. Uh, well, all of those things are likely going to reduce the load on the barbell. And you probably find something that's tolerable. And that's how you should start training and work back towards your previous sort of uh, your regularly scheduled programming, ideally using some auto-regulation. That's what I would do. And we have an article that kind of, Explains that process in a little bit more detail called Pain and Training, what do? Should men consume folic acid in addition to five milligrams of creatine if they're planning on having children above the age of 36? No. So one five milligrams of creatine is like a fart of creatine. The recommended dose is 0.05 grams of creatine per kilogram body weight. So if you're 100 kilograms, 100 kilos, you get five grams of creatine per day, not five milligrams. No need for folic acid supplementation since you're not uh, you know, taking the fertilized ovum and letting it implant in your uterus and then you know, growing the notochord um, which is the, and the neural tube, which is what the folic acid is supposed to reduce defects in, you don't need it. Keto diet uniquely beneficial as the first dietary intervention for obese people in terms of adherence. No, people do not adhere to a ketogenic diet on average any better than any other type of diet, actually a little worse. And uh, even those who are, uh, like, even when people are forced to adhere in a metabolic ward study, they don't lose any more weight. Yeah, because there's nothing magical about ketogenic diet. I know, I know. And then the other thing is this, so, like, ketogenic diet in general, it's not a monolithic, like, dietary construct. It's not like, oh, there's only one way to eat a ketogenic diet. So could you make a health-promoting ketogenic diet? Sure, it would have, you know, fruits and vegetables, total daily saturated fat intake would be under 10%. Um, so you'd have to vary your protein choices and your fat sources, and, and I think that, sure, could be a health-promoting version of the ketogenic diet. But the way most people do it, they do it like assholes. They're like, I'm just eating ribeye after ribeye, bacon, which I love bacon, don't get me wrong, like with extra butter and extra bacon grease because I can get my dietary fat up. And it's like, this isn't a challenge to see how dumb you can be. Does the same apply for intermittent fasting as the ketogenic diet? Correct, there, are, there, uh, there is no magical diet that uniquely works better than any other type of diet provided dietary adherence is the same. Intermittent fasting isn't special. Ketogenic diets aren't special. Vegan diets aren't special. It's just whatever the person can adhere to. So, you know, if someone wants to go on a ketogenic diet, the first question you ask them is, hey, are you okay with never eating carbohydrates again? And if the answer is yes, then they are a candidate for the ketogenic diet. As a doctor, is TRT a legitimate medical intervention or is it just a scam? As a barbell Medicine follower, we have... Three, four, maybe five podcasts now discussing precisely this issue. Three on testosterone alone, one on hormones in training that we just published. Another interview with Casey Nadolsky, an endocrinologist, talking about hormones and exercise. So, yeah, if you have uh, hypogonadism and you need to do uh, uh, hormone replacement therapy, that's a legitimate medical intervention. How much volume to grow a sexy beard? Well, that's a great question. What you need to do is uh, after the egg is fertilized by the sperm, you have to let it incubate uh, for about nine months, give or take. And then, uh, you know, you, t- you take it out of the, the, uh, the womb and then uh, you expose it to uh, a progressively overloaded environment for about 35 years. And this is what you get. This is what you get for better or worse. All right, that is a wrap on episode 111 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. Again, this has been like a greatest hits version of my last two Instagram lives. We're gonna be live again this Wednesday on my Instagram page, Jordan underscore Barbell Medicine, 5.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. We're talking all about injuries. So if you have a question, come over there. Let's hang out and uh, ask me a question otherwise we'll catch you next monday on our next podcast episode 112 which is going to be all about type 2 diabetes and again we want to hear from you what specific questions do you have about type 2 diabetes and training and or nutrition interventions um, send us your question at media at and we'll get to them thanks again for tuning in see you guys next time